Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hope you're well. I had a very nice time. I went to Wimbledon a couple of times. Massive tennis fan. And my friend Matt won tickets in the ballot. I mean, I say won, but you know, was able to buy tickets in the ballot. And then a very kind person from the Lawn Tennis Association, the LTA, invited me along. And I went along. So I watched two days of tennis. On the first day of tennis, uh, myself and Matt decided that we wanted to be uh, instrumental in helping shape a wonderful day for everyone. I created a chant. Well, he wrote the chant and I delivered the chant, which was uh, rather coarse and simple. Nori, 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 oi, oi, oi. And it gave me immense pride that the chant was not only featured in articles in The Sun, in The Guardian, in the on the BBC website, uh, pretty much every bit of commentary. Also... Cam Norrie himself was asked about it and he said it was one of the highlights of the match. One of the articles said, at the start of the match, a lone voice started a chant. And in fact, the critical thing is I did. Four Italian chaps came in. We were quite near the back. Four Italian chaps came in and while they didn't speak the best English, I said to them, I'm going to do Norrie, Norrie, Norrie and you, oi, oi, oi. And it was that act of agitating the crowd, of orchestrating a chant that effectively led to it catching on because uh, at one stage, a lot of other people were taking it up. Anyway, before the match, actually, we'd been... If you've ever been to Wimbledon, it's the, the glory of Wimbledon is not just the, the fact of Centre Court being just this majestic cauldron of sport, but also you can wander around so you can find yourself walking past court 18 and there's Novak Djokovic, Djokovic knocking up or these, um, or the, anyway, we wandered down after watching the glory of Angebeur. Sorry about all this tennis chat. I'll get to the point in a second. Anyway, we, after the glory of watching Angebeur and there was Cam Norrie w- warming up, signing a few things. And I shouted the Norrie, Norrie, Norrie chant there. And Matt didn't join in on the oi, oi, oi's. Um, and I sort of went over and explained to Cam what had gone wrong. Anyway, it's a shame that when Cam was saying after the match how much he enjoyed the chant, he didn't have the courtesy to credit the person who created it. But as Boris Johnson might say, them's the breaks. Today's guest... Oh, 
the, the other thing I'll tell you is that my new book, Fortitude, comes out in about six weeks' time. And there's been, there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people signing up to do the Workplace Culture course that I've created for free for people who pre-order it. So um, I'm actually going to keep that course rolling open uh, for another couple of weeks because I'm going on holiday. So if you do want to sign up and get that course, there's four new episodes coming during August as well. So you can you can still sign up and do that just because it's had uh, lovely interest. So that book's available. It's getting some really good reviews. Voice of America this week, the radio station, said that it was the best book of 2022 so far. Not my words, the words and of a non-specific voice in America. Today's podcast guest is Liz Fosline, and you'll know Liz because she's part of Liz and Molly. Uh, Liz Fosline and Molly West do probably a lot of cartoons that have appeared in your internet feed that either appear on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on Instagram. Quite often they've got, as we discussed, they've got a, a mathematical, a Venn diagram, a bar chart nature to them. But they, uh, you'll be very familiar with the, the work of Liz Fosline. And through this expression, through this ability they've got, that they've claimed this space, um, they've been able to actually reach an incredible audience. It's really impressive, actually, how to demonstrate that even in a, a cluttered field, to differentiate yourself is often the thing that any of us look for. So they've been really, you know, you know all manner of people have sh- re- shared and reshared their their wonderful work. And so the c- discussion with Liz today is is a really lovely one. Uh, we talk about her process. She's the cartoonist of the pair. We talk about her process. We talk about how the response from the audience can inform what they do next. And we talk about their new work, uh, their new book called Big Feelings. It's a lovely discussion. I really hope you enjoy this. This is my discussion with the author of Big Feelings. This is Liz Fosley. Liz, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. And yeah. uh, I'd love I'd love you to kick off by just introducing who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Um, I'm Liz Fosling. I'm the co-author and illustrator of the book Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay, that just recently launched in the UK. Um, my co-author Molly and I also co-wrote a book called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. And I also in my day job, lead the content and communications teams at a company called Humu, and we use behavioral science to help managers become more effective. I guess one of the ways that people might have encountered your work is because you do these wonderful illustrations that often end up in people's Instagram stories, or they end up on LinkedIn. And tell me about a little bit about, about that. So you're the illustrator of, of the two of you. And tell me about the role that illustration plays in your life and and how you found yourself applying it to some of the challenges that we find ourselves facing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so I've always doodled as a form of therapy or meditation. So I actually really dislike traditional meditation. It just makes me more anxious, <laughs> which I, so for me, I've always preferred going for a walk or something where my body is physically engaged. So doodling has always been kind of an escape. And then the illustration started when I was going through a hard time figuring out how to express those emotions and 
I just started making charts. So my background is actually in math and economics, which I think you can see reflected very much in the illustration style. Mm, There's a lot of charts. There's a lot of Venn diagrams. But it was a way for me to just really try to grapple with my emotions. Um, And then I started posting them online. We included them in our first book. And I was really surprised by the response. But I think what's nice about them is, or what people have told me is, it's, it's a very simple way in to something that can feel scary. So, you know, big feelings like despair or anger are stigmatized. I think it's hard for us often to admit to ourselves that we're experiencing them. So just to see an innocuous little illustration that kind of makes it okay that you're not the only person feeling this, I think is a nice entry point into some of these conversations that we don't normally have or might feel difficult to take part in and some of your illustrations just seem to have developed a life of their own you know there's some of them that I see you know you occasionally see them and you must witness them passed around without your tag on them or you see them sort of turning up in different places can you give me a sense of what your biggest viral hits have been or what you think your biggest viral hits have been yes so I think there's two which are both Venda or they're both pie charts. And one is what I thought would make me productive, which just says hard work. And then it says what actually makes us productive and it's hard work, but also sleep and exercise and eating well and spending time with friends and family. So that one was the first illustration, at least that came on my radar as people were actually texting to me saying, I saw this show up at my work or on Twitter. And then the other one is similar, which it says, how we are taught to measure success. And it says job title and salary. And then the way that you should actually measure success in your life is, are you happy? Are you healthy? Do you wake up energized? I actually forget the specific language on it, but just getting at this idea that you can have an amazing job title. You can be making a lot of money, but that actually might not be what's best for you and your mental health. They've both got a lot in common. And like you say, they've both got that mathematical root to it. Does it... Does it enhance your process? Is there something about working out what lands with people and that helps direct your attention? Because it's, firstly, you know, I think the wonderful thing about this voice that actually helps you you both um, create is that, you know, it's it's drawn you to attention of wonderful, like the the most respected names in psychology, Adam Grant and people like that adore your work. And so it's obviously helped you cut through, but I wonder if it's also informed the work as well. I wonder if it's also made you think, oh gosh, this, that there was like a casual doodling on a Tuesday evening has actually hit an inner truth that maybe I want to delve deeper in. I'd, I'd love to understand that. Yeah. So it's funny you asked that because when we first launched or when I first launched the Instagram, it was very much focused on emotions at work. And so I think if, you know, if someone were to go back and look at the very initial posts, it was about meetings and, you know, getting to the office in the morning, this is pre pandemic. And then, yeah, I just started broadening the scope of what I was illustrating it became less work focused as the you know our first book had come out that wasn't really the focus of my life as much anymore and just saw that those illustrations performed way way better than the work focused ones so that was definitely a signal of oh there's this 
bigger thing going on here. We had started with emotions at work, but there's still these emotional experiences that seem to really resonate with people that are not just confined to work. So maybe there's even room outside of the quote unquote office, which now means many things to many people um, during the pandemic, that maybe it's just about the fundamental, like we our, our initial thesis was we've never learned how to express emotions at work. And I think what we've realized now is we're actually not that good at expressing emotions at home either. There's still a lot of stigma in every part of our life, especially around some of these bigger feelings. So noticing that the non-work focused, very emotions heavy illustrations performed well was an early signal of that. Yeah, because some of the most vivid stories in the new book are very much about emotions just generally in our lives, right? I mean, you tell mm-hmm. um, stories about like, uh, with just personal experiences, and maybe you want to go into it rather than me preempting, how sometimes anger can can extend into our life and and how it renders us inarticulate. Yeah, the big idea is that there are these emotions that we all experience that are often described as bad. So we asked about 1,500 people all around the world, you know, we cover seven emotions in the book. And so those are uncertainty, comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, and regret. And so we asked 1,500 people, have you ever heard these described as bad or negative? And I think it was 99.9% said yes. And then we asked the same group of people, have you experienced at least one of these emotions in the last couple weeks? And again, almost every single person said yes. (laughs) So it's they're so universal, and yet we stigmatize them to such an extent that what happens is we often suppress them or try to pretend like we're not experiencing them. And that ultimately is far worse for our well-being than sitting with the emotion, learning the need behind it, and addressing that need. So the big thesis of big feelings is emotions are just data, And rather than suppress, rather than beat ourselves up for experiencing some of them, it's much more helpful to ourselves to process them and then figure out how we can move forward. And often we can harness. There's a lot of energy in something like anger. Envy can reveal what we value if we listen to it. But that first step is to listen to it and not, again, sort of berate ourselves for even feeling something that's very normal. And talk me through the process of how you went through that. So the 1,500 people, you must get a wealth, a richness of comments in your social media posts as well. You must you must hear things from people that, that maybe make you want to double tap and sort of dive into that a little. Yeah, it was so most of those people came from, they either followed us on social media or subscribed to our newsletter. So that was where we first made the call for, can you take the survey? Would you be willing to share your stories with us? And we were, A, both really touched by the overwhelming amount of people who were willing to open up, like both by taking the survey and then later a lot of them let us interview them about their experiences. But then what also struck me is the diversity of the people who responded. Um, so we asked also people for some basic demographic information. So race, location, age, things like that. And it was validating. And hopefully this is validating for other people listening to see that these emotions, you know, it's not one group of people that are experiencing these. It's really, truly universal. So everyone over the last six months 
I think the most common emotion people had felt was uncertainty. Many, many people struggled with perfectionism and it did not seem limited to a certain generation or a certain gender. Um, so that was also something that really struck me while doing this research. wonder if then it's just interestingly following the chain of how this uh, happened, that maybe the degree of surprise you've got about that is that you've created something from a, a lived experience. You've created something visual that lands in people's Instagram feeds or in people's Twitter feeds. And then it's just so beautiful to see it reflected back from maybe an audience that you hadn't immediately expected. Is, is that sort of what's gone on there? Totally. Yeah. You've really described it well. Um, it's also funny because with the illustrations in particular, I feel that they're emblematic of these two sides to myself. So for context, I was raised in a very emotionally suppressed household. <laughs> my parents are immigrants. They're very stoic. They're very academic. Um, and there were never big expressions of emotions growing up. Like I can never remember that happening. Um, and I very much entered the professional world thinking that to be a good employee, I had, I could never fuss. I could never fail. And I absolutely could never feel. And that I've since learned like all three of those are incorrect. <laughs> um, right. But with the illustrations, it's still like, as I mentioned before, they're a way for me to process my emotions. And so they're still very buttoned up in a way. Like if, if I had to be, you know, psychoanalyze them or anything, it's, it's still like in a chart form, which is, you know, very mathematical. Mm. I'm not revealing any personal details about myself. It's truly just speaking to the core emotion but I think the outcome of that is because it's not woven in with, you know, most of the time, like my gender or where I live or these sort of more specific things, it makes them more universal. So it was sort of an unintended consequence mm. that I've observed of by strangely by like withholding personal <laughs> details, it's made them maybe more engaging and accessible. And I wonder if actually the one, you know, we, the privilege of people who speak English is we all think, yeah, we speak the language that won. But actually, if, I wonder if the, the, there's a, a common language that also is part of them, that the fact that they do have this mathematical mathematical origin, everyone in the world learns this this sort of science of, of bar charts and pie charts. And so it immediately connects universally because we've all learned it from whatever hemisphere of the world that we, we come from. Yeah, it's, I've, there's also people who have emailed me and asked to translate the illustrations and then they've posted the translated version. So it's just, it's been super magical and very, I would say, I'll say like very unexpected, honestly, to see <laughs> so many, yeah, people all around the world wanting to also present these in yeah. their language. Then it begs the question, what made you, because it connects so well, what made you sit about writing another book rather than thinking, wow, this visual medium seems to be igniting people. What made you think, I, I still want to persist with capturing stories and turning this learning into sort of um, lessons from people's, uh, other people's experience? Yeah. So I, I think one of the, what I just described, which is this lack of personal detail in the illustrations right. is also limiting because it's, I think, you know, humans, there's research that shows that we remember stories more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and Molly, I, you know, we love writing together. I think we both also grew up being voracious readers. So I still love books and love the written form. Um, 
And really the genesis of Big Feelings, the latest book, was we had our first book come out, which is called No Hard Feelings, in February 2019. And then later that year, kind of ironically, we both started experiencing really, really hard feelings. So I was losing my father-in-law to cancer, and Molly had chronic pain that led her to fall into despair. Um, And so that was... We were both just searching for stories from other people. We really started the book to help ourselves, to research, like, what do you do when changing how you act or what you tell yourself doesn't necessarily change how you feel? So that led us to think, okay, maybe there's another book here combined with the success that these more emotions-focused illustrations had had. So we thought that was another signal. We actually took that book and pitched it to our publisher in... January 2020. So this is pre-pandemic. So we wanted to write a book about like hard feelings. What do you do when life gets difficult? And our publisher at the time said, you know, this is this is a depressing book. <laughs> do people really right. want to talk about anger and despair? And like, I don't really know if there's an audience for this. Fast forward to June 2020, the pandemic has struck globally. Everyone's going through really intense times. And our publisher reached back out to us and said, remember that book? Big feelings. I think we're ready to publish it. So it was <laughs> that was the genesis. But then it was also interesting to observe, which many people have now discussed, a general shift of suddenly being like, "Oh, we're all there, yeah." Big feelings are everywhere. We're all experiencing these. It's time we learn to talk about them. Look, the the book is most powerful when it's just it's always you know actually you say the the thing that made your other work connect was the fact that you didn't give of yourself but you know the moments you give of yourself and and Molly gives of herself it's quite different childhoods but you know both vividly describing the role that either emotional regulation played or um, just really really fascinating to hear those things. Um, it sort of begs the question for me. Look, firstly, those those hearing those stories really helps, and it's a really interesting thing. But the the question that I sort of had a bit going through my head was: occasionally, I get asked to go and talk at companies about how do we beat burnout here? How do we overcome this? How do we overcome the stress? And the que- the, the reason why I at times feel conflicted because I think, oh gosh, I'm kind of being brought in to mitigate a toxic culture i'm being brought in because they don't want to address the underlying issues they're kind of saying there's something that the employees need to do to to manage this better and you know when you're talking about burnout or when you're talking about ways that we might mitigate um, different emotions in workplaces do you ever worry that these are effectively um giving a deniability, a a sort of an excuse to do bad systems. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I love that you brought this up. So we, we mentioned this in the book, you know, in the, in the past two years, many organizations have sort of been forced to talk more about well-being and burnout because it's become so omnipresent. And yes, we are very much against this strategy of giving someone, for example, a meditation app and saying, go meditate five minutes before work, do not do it during work hours, and then come back recharged and don't bother anyone else on the team with your mental health. But we've given you the meditation app, so you should be happy now. So we're, yeah, we do not, (laughs) we are not proponents of that approach. And so what we do when we go into organizations, and we also talk about in the book, is we strike a balance between, look, here are some things you can do as an individual to make yourself feel better. 
And here are what managers and leaders need to do to change the environment. Because you cannot, it's really, really hard to be resilient in an environment that makes it hard, right? So it's one thing if we say it's important to take a break during the day and then your manager is emailing you every five minutes. You're just not going to take a break. And so we say we emphasize the importance of breaks We share tips for how individuals can build that into their schedule. And then we'll say to the manager or the leader, you need to make this a collective team practice or it will not happen. Um, So that's how we try to push back against that is also putting some clear onus on the upper levels to create a culture that supports some of these individual actions that we also walk through. The the question of emotions is really um, the uh, internationalization of emotions. You you spoke about coming from uh, a family of um, emotionally repressed immigrants, I think is is the way you you described it, not to put words in your mouth. Um, And obviously emotions are experienced differently. As you've done international editions of the book, have, have you had to reflect on that or actually is the broad message the same and it's more about the interpretation? Yeah, there's definitely cultural differences in emotional expression. So one of the books that Molly and I love is called The Culture Map by Erin Meyer, who's an American who's now a professor at INSEAD in France. And she actually maps out, she has many charts, but the one I love most is she looks at um, different cultures and how comfortable they are with confrontation and how comfortable they are with emotional expression. And so for context, my dad is Scandinavian. My mom is German. Um, They both are low on the emotional expression and fairly low on the, my dad more so on the confrontation. Um, So that definitely, her research rang true for me. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that everyone needs to dramatically change and that one is good or bad. Um, I think what was hard for me was having this more stoic mindset in a more emotionally expressive country like America. So I had this exchange with my mom, who's an interpreter translator, and she was, you know, sending out emails to clients in America where she would say, they would ask for an attack for a document and she would attach it to the email and say, here is the document, Sylvia, that was the email. And I was like, you know, these are American clients. You could say, how was your weekend? (laughs) Hope you're doing well. Here's the document. Let me know if you have any questions. Thank you, Sylvia. And she just, her response was, why would I add so many words to my email? That makes no sense. Um, And so, you know, she has a point. I totally see she's doing it much more efficiently than everyone else. But I was like, it's just adapting a little bit to some of the emotional expression norms in a different place. So she started doing that. And then she actually called me this is, this has all happened a couple of years ago, but she called me and said, I asked this woman how her weekend was. And she told me this wonderful story about her daughter. And I talked about you and we really connected. So that was, it was just a funny anecdote about these differences. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, again, it's just like understanding what those differences are so that you can avoid miscommunication. So seeing my mom's email and understanding like, okay, she just has never, it's not a, a customary thing for her to add all of these exclamation points and fluff, you know, in her words, fluff things to an email versus that's very common and kind of the standard in the U.S. 
And what a blessing, though, that when she did experiment with it, it went well. Yes. Because the yeah. curse, had she experimented with it and it had gone spectacularly wrong, would have would have closed that forevermore. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so which emotion, you, you go through, I think, seven emotions, which is the one that you think has landed most powerfully? Yeah, I would say on social media, kind of unsurprisingly, comparison seems to have landed a lot with people just because it's, you know, social media is extremely fertile ground for comparison. Um, and then in conversation or in emails, it seems burnout has been a really big one and then uncertainty as well. So the continued, I don't know what's going to happen next month. Everything in the world seems very chaotic. It really does, you know, the past week, you know, there's all like every headline in the news is just jarring. Um, so yeah, I would say social media, it's been comparison and then outside of social media, it's, it's been burnout and uncertainty. Yeah. Because I think broadly to sort of summarize some of what you say about comparison, you, you give, you give the quotation often attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, which is comparison is the thief of joy. I, I don't even know if he's definitely the, as you say, no one knows if it's definitely. Yeah, we couldn't find who said that actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, you you broadly go into like how comparison ends up stealing happiness from us. Yeah, it's but it's we also make the point that it's because we stop comparing. So we lean into these really unhealthy traps that are very common, and then we stop there. So, for example. Research shows that we tend to compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths. And we also tend to compare ourselves to this mishmash mystical person that we've created. So what I mean by that is I go on social media and I see that someone is having the most beautiful vacation in Italy. Another person just had like a beautiful baby and a third person just got promoted. And instead of saying these are three individuals that are doing three different things, I compare myself to this person who is in Italy on vacation with their beautiful baby celebrating this giant promotion. And then I'm like, I don't have any of those three things. What's wrong with me? As opposed to saying like the person who just had the baby, you know, they, it's, it's just like an individual <laughs> situation. So I, I think that's very common. And so what we really encourage people to do in the book is to instead sit back and say like, okay, the person in Italy, you know, do I really want that? Would I, do I really want to be in Italy? Do I want to give up what it would take to get there? So, and I share a personal story where one of my friends actually did get promoted and got, and like suddenly was leading a 200 person department. And I felt a lot of envy and because I was comparing myself to her. And the next morning I explored that more in more depth. And I realized I basically, I'm an introvert. I don't like back-to-back meetings. And fundamentally, I don't really want to lead a 200-person team. That sounds horrific. I think I would be exhausted hour two of that job. And so it was more that I just felt a little stagnant in my own career and I wanted something prestigious or exciting to talk about. So it was actually by exploring deeper and comparing, like, do I actually want the day-to-day that is involved in this shiny promotion that she could share? The answer was no. And then that reduced my envy a lot because it was like, okay, this it's the true comparison is not as jealousy inducing as this sort of surface level. 
Got it. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of, it's drawing on that. Also, there's a lot of ugly babies on Instagram, as far as I've seen. And so, you know, just remembering the ugly <laughs> No comment. No comment on the babies. Yeah. <laughs> um, fabulous. I, and I, I guess, you know, I'm really intrigued in your own path. So you've got a full-time job where you work communicating, sort of leading communication. And Molly's got a full-time job as well. This, like, I mean, you know, talk about comparison. These are just formidable levels of productivity. How do you divide your time? How how do these things sort of manage to fit around busy careers like that? Yeah, it definitely helps that there's two of us. So um, it's, I yeah, definitely Molly and I, I think, could not do what we do if it was, you know, if it was just up to me to write a book. Um, and we have worked together now for seven, eight years, so almost a decade, and have really perfected kind of who takes what. And it's nice. Like, we will also flag to the other. You know, Molly will say, I'm going to be on vacation for two weeks. I would really like to detach. Can you cover everything while I'm out? And so then I will take any incoming emails or, you know, I'll just kind of work around her schedule and she'll do the same for me. So that makes it infinitely easier that it's not that we need to take on everything by ourselves. Um, and then it's, it's been, you know, a a journey. I would say neither of us have perfected it. And this is also something we talk about in the book that it's recovering from burnout or avoiding burnout is a constant practice. It's not ever something where it's like, great, I've beaten burnout for the rest of my life. It's something that we tend to slip back into as these unhealthy habits. And so It's also, we each have practices in place to help ourselves make sure that we're treating ourselves kindly. So for example, every Sunday night, I'll do a calendar audit. And if I see that I have so much going on on one day, I'll try to figure out what meetings can I move? What do I actually, should I deprioritize and just actually say no to right now so that that day is not quite as exhausting. Um, And that's like a weekly practice that I do to make sure that I don't burn out. And Molly has very similar habits in place. So it's a mix of having found someone to collaborate with who can also kind of step in when you need to step out a little bit and then making sure that we're both making our well-being a, a practice that we engage in regularly. Yeah, that's what really struck me. I think Molly got in touch with with me about this chat and I love your stuff. So I was like, yes, absolutely. And then when I read the book, I was like, Oh man, I thought these two have really got it going on. And then you see like the dramas of, you know, it's very relatable because it's like, you know, I think because people see your stuff in sort of this environment where you scroll through, you go, yeah, that's another good one, man. You scroll through, like I get it. And then to see the dramas behind the screens of burnout, of self-doubt, of personal situations, it was just this, it was this humanizing element I think whereas like wow I would never imagine that degree of humanity the the normal human life in truth but um it was really very relatable in fact that's really nice to hear and yeah that's one that's one of the things that was really important to us in writing this book is to be very open about times that we've failed at implementing our own advice and I think hopefully there's lessons in that for people and also yeah, one of our big goals was just to help people feel less alone when they're experiencing something really hard. And do your family read your work? I think you say your dad should do more housework, right? And has your dad <laughs> read that and said, hey, hang on. 
<laughs> he, yeah, my parents read it. Um, and I, you know, give them, a okay. <laughs> they've, they've read it before the book comes out. Um, so yeah, they, they're very supportive. So, and they also, I will, to their credit, they have become much more emotionally expressive. Okay. Um, it's been like an interesting, I think it's the research that I've done has changed my dynamic with them for the better. Um, so yeah, they're, they're very supportive. Oh, how fabulous. Because in that meme that went around the world that maybe is true and maybe isn't true, you know, that Scandinavian people won't feed you if you visit. Whether <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that's yeah. true or not true. Was, would, would Germans feed us or I will not say that was, well, that was about Sweden and my dad's from Norway. Okay. So I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> um the Norwegians and Swedes have some kind of rivalry right. that I don't fully grasp, um, but exists. Uh, I think Germans feed people. Um, I was always well fed when I visited. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was, I remember seeing that all over social media. I'm going to abstain. Absolutely. I'm not going to wait. Because they, like, they, I, they, well, you probably saw some of it, but there were, there were ripples against, I think on the New York times or in the New York, there was an article about Swedish people and, oh my goodness, it went everywhere that, that um, yeah, that was, I remember seeing that everywhere, yeah. <laughs> um, but another reminder of how potently a graphic can communicate a message, whether erroneous or not, but um, how mm -hmm. potent and just, you know, it just astonishes me that you've created this, this great, powerful lane where you can communicate really nuanced things that connect with people in a brilliant way. And so, look, you know, the book, I think, takes that platform that you've built for yourself and really adds so much weight and substance and, and character and story and humanity to it that it's a, it's a great summer read for anyone who's thinking of doing it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, really nice to hear. And I hope anyone who reads it walks away feeling, yeah, just better in the hard moments and like they have some new tools that they can try to move through challenging times what will you do next what book will you pitch that your idiot publisher will reject <laughs> and then come begging to <laughs> they're you not, in a year's they're not. time <laughs> we love our publisher <laughs> i do want to say that um i don't know i think you know molly and i when we wrote no hard feelings our first book we both it's it's a long tiring process and i think we both said we're never doing that again <laughs> So here we are with book two. So I I think that's a testament to we really don't know. Um, and I we'll see. We'll see what comes out of conversations, what we go through. But nothing right now I'm just ready for a little book break. <laughs> when you do the audiobook of it, and audiobooks are chaotic, aren't they? Like you turn up there that someone will say to you in the booth, How are you dealing with this? When you're in the, maybe mm -hmm. yours is less chaotic than other people's but when you turn up do they ask you to describe some of the illustrations or do they just put them in a pdf and forget about it that's yeah so we did talk about this and we ended up just putting it in right. a pdf because it, it, it yeah it would just have i don't think it's really a good experience you know picture is worth a thousand yeah. words and it would have been like a 17 hour <laughs> no, addition to the audio book <laughs> and we're describing what's over a garden wall yeah we so. just say like the illustrations are in the PDF, and then we read the text. Right, right, got it. 
So lovely to chat to you, Liz. Um, best of luck with the new book. And, uh, and look, you know, so many people love your work that I hope you continue connecting with them with, uh, with such, well, uh, such potent emotions. So Yeah, thank you for having me and for, yeah, helping shine a light on the work too. Appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Liz. And what a lovely discussion. And I'm um, just in awe of their work. So lovely to, to actually catch up with someone you admire uh, so much. Fabulous to have your company today. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to be keeping going with a, a few episodes over the summer. I've got uh, a few coming up. And I've got one that I promised you about the book Fortitude that you're going to be hearing in a couple of weeks too. Feel free to get in touch and you can always contact me via the newsletter. You can find the link to that in the show notes below. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.